0: Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm Katie Halper, and I'm joined by the lovely Leslie Lee III.
1: Hey, Katie. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Happy New Year.
0: You too. Good yontif.
1: Yeah, akeome, as they say in Japan.
0: Akeome. Did I say A-ke- right? A-ke- akeome. A-ke. Akeome.
1: Yeah, even a-ke-ome. though it's the super cool, youthful way to say it. So if, so, if you say it to an older person, they would be like, oh, K is pretty cool. K is mean, pretty hip. <laughs> right.
0: They'd expect nothing less, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. How were your holidays?
1: Oh, good, good, good. How was yours?
0: Good. Saw the fam. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, watch curb upon your recommendation list. Like, oh,
1: really? Really? You know, I,
0: I missed a bunch of seasons, so I just went straight to season eleven.
1: Oh, and you it oh, I mean, you don't need to know a lot of plot you other than don't. he has a Black best friend. Now. Right. Well, that's
0: what you mentioned because you were, I think, comparing our dynamic to that, although it's very different. But <laughs> we you were comparing the Black Jewish dynamic of which yes. we speak so much. Yes, yeah. But it's good. I like it. I like season 11. I kind of miss have, him having a female and co. Like, I think he needs a female counter.
1: Yes, yes, that right? is something that's been missing from the past yeah. few seasons. No Cheryl. It's no a Cheryl. hole, it's a hole. It's, it's a hole, hole
0: because Cheryl is the straight woman. Right? So it's grounding
1: yeah, and there was Wanda Sykes for a while, and I think Viv- uh, Vivica Fox. Fox, uh, yeah, right. Uh, took uh, took over, but now is you don't have that, you know, that feminine energy there. Energy,
0: right. right? That feminine energy, yeah. And you don't have a straight person, so like he and what's his name? Oh yeah,
1: they just his, Leon just hype yeah. each other up. There's yeah, exactly, no straight right. person to bring it down.
0: Right. Yeah, but I thought the first episode was really funny with Albert Brooks.
1: Oh, yes, yes, where he yes. has
0: a, I'm not giving anything away. He has a funeral for himself while he's alive because he wants to hear all the nice things that people have to say about him. Yes. That was pretty funny. It was really yeah. funny. And then, of course, I saw that episode where... Should we spoil it? I mean... How about the
1: dry cleaning? Yeah, it was really It's not funny. really a spoiler, but he bumped into a white supremacist who has his, you know, his clan whites with him and, le- and spills, like, coffee on it. And Larry... Yeah feels obligated to take it to the cleaners because yeah. even though this man is a white supremacist, you know, if we don't, you know, respect some basic human dignity yeah. to are anyone. Yeah, are better than them? Are we better than this? So he says, you know, I have to get this dry clean, clean, taken care of. And the crazy part is he convinces the dry cleaner of the Jewish dry, well. cleaner, yeah. the Jewish
0: dry cleaner. Right, right. It's so funny. But it only goes so far with the dry cleaner.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Should we tell them or no? I guess we'll, we'll, we'll protect people's ears. We'll protect. You can it, yeah.
1: wait till the end.
0: Yeah. Wait, yeah. It's, it's good. Watch the full, the full thing. Yeah. It's you good. know
1: what I've been watching, Katie, what? that. Basically everyone in America is watching But no one's talking about it online Nobody online is talking about it But Yellowstone
0: What is
1: that? It's a It's a crime drama by Taylor Sheridan uh starring Kevin Costner it's like secession with sons of anarchy Whoa, what's it
0: on what what network? it's on what par- it's
1: on Paramount it's on Paramount TV which I guess I they only get in red States or something but it I has ten, had 10 million live viewers on this what? latest episode and Katie when I tell you the, your, your 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 auntie and uncle down south they're watching this stuff there's sex there's violence there's cussing non-stop I could believe it. I thought it was like Walker Texas Ranger. Right. Like a like a really safe sort of thing. But when you watch it, it's just like very, very brutal I, didn't even know cowboy. I had an auntie
0: and uncle in the south. <laughs> he might I, I have to go on a cross country cross-country <laughs> trip to find them now.
1: But yeah And it's a really fun uh, show Great show And it has It sneaks in Some like decent politics Because Ooh. You know It talks about like Colonialism And indigenous rights That's always uh, In the background Even though the hero The uh, the protagonist I should say Not the hero of the show Is Kevin Costner Who's this like Rancher And he doesn't want to sell One inch of his land But usually The people coming after him Are like cor- Corporations And development uh, companies right. And they're coming To Montana because global warming is making it so oh. that there, the slopes in you know Colorado and Aspen no longer viable, so they want to build a veil in Montana, and that's and like they come after his land and try to take it from uh, him. But then the Dinges people who still live in there are, are like, "Well, you stole this land from us in the first place, so we'll help you fight these developers." But after that's over, we're coming for you.
0: Oh wow. Huh, so like temporary alliances. Yes, yes,
1: it's a very interesting, interesting show as by a guy named uh, Taylor Sheridan. And he has some, you know, he has, he puts out a lot of stuff that really appeal, is really masculine and appealing uh, to, you know, small C conservative values, but it has this, you know, underlying critique. And he always talks about indigenous uh, people and missing and exploit indigenous women uh, in his uh, storytelling, um, which is I think uh, very uh, good and good. So. He he sneaks in some you know good politics in this show that's mostly about cowboys shooting each other
0: that's great i think that's really needed right because we need to reach people who wouldn't otherwise sit down and watch something that was about politics or about colonialism or the legacy right. or, of or climate change even or like climate, climate change,
1: change yeah. is, a, is a like a is in the background of this show as well
0: reminds me of that movie three kings Oh, Three Kings, yeah, uh, David E. Russell, David O. Russell, is that his name? Yeah, David O. Russell, yeah. Just a jam-packed kind of like action film, right? Except actually, big anti-war critique, I would say. Oh yes, humanizing Iraqi people, which you don't see in Hollywood a lot.
1: Oh, yeah, and in this show, um, the one of the sons is, like, a former operator in Iraq, but oh. he uses those skills to, like, brutally murder people because he's basically, like, in a gang, too, right? So, like, he brings those skills back and, like, he has, like, a fake, um, basically a fake uh, law, law designation from, like, border patrol or something like that that he uses to murder people and like the cops work for them so like, so even there's like even like black lives matter sort of critiques in this show of like the criminal justice system oh and wow CAB. yeah exactly all cops are bastards in uh in the yellowstone universe absolutely
0: yeah wow we're gonna let's kevin come on the show <laughs> kev come on the show tyler taylor i saw kevin at wesleyan when i went there he was looking at wesleyan i think with a daughter i don't think they wound up going his kid oh that's i probably would bad. have heard about it but i did see him in in the olin library in wesleyan's olin library which is a beautiful library
1: it's very interesting because he plays so much against type because i i think we all remember he was almost like the red state tom hanks in the 90s you know very you know st- but in this show, he's just buck wild. He's oh, like wow. it, he's like he's like Walter White, uh, but worse. Uh, mm. In this one, so very very interesting uh, television that millions and millions of people are watching. But uh, you hear, you know, so many people online at least talk about like Succession. But this is like getting like magnitudes more viewers than Succession ever
0: will. It's a show that Succession would want to have on its network.
1: Yes, exactly. Whatever that.
0: What's the network called? the the, the media company in succession whatever that's called they
1: would buy this show they oh yeah, want,
0: yeah. They, they want the eyeballs
1: yeah and in fact this show has a lot of the dna of succession cuz it is about this family and they have a very like similar you know dynamic and structure we yellowstone is a fascinating right, combination we'll we'll of all it. basically every prestige show that has existed but but are aimed at a non prestige uh, audience and it's just going over like gangbusters
0: All right, I'm going to look into it. I may have to get a Paramount password from someone I know (laughs) and uh, check it out. Well, all right, that's great. That's something to binge watch. What else is good happening right now? It's crappy, but I kind of, you know, what's his name? Harbin Corbin, the guy, the British guy who they make like every single book of his into something on Netflix. And they have French series, Spanish, English. This one's called Stay Close. It's court, it has a kind of young adult energy, young adult novel, mystery energy. It's not great, but it's kind of, Addict. It's, it's binge-worthy Not really, there's so much good stuff out there I should really take back those words that I just said <laughs> Don't watch them, unless you're like You just want something kind of mindless <laughs> Yeah
1: But I, I definitely recommend Yellowstone I think it is very, very good TV But also very salacious and fun uh, okay. Too, and interesting, yeah
0: Yeah, someone wrote F Yellowstone, watch One Piece I don't know.
1: Uh, One Piece is is an anime, which also has a lot of interesting politics embedded in it.
0: I don't watch anime. I don't. When I was a little, you know, when I was a little kid, I couldn't even watch cartoons. I would only watch Fairytale Theater. Is that what it was called? It was like real actors playing like Mary Steenburgen was Little Red Riding Hood. Elizabeth McGovern was Cinderella. Matthew Broderick was Prince Charming. No, Elizabeth McGovern was Snow White. Did I say Cinderella? She was Snow White. I think Jennifer Beals was Cinderella. Ellen Barkin was in one of them.
1: Oh, Ellen Barkin. Love Ellen Barkin.
0: Yeah. Rapunzel had Jeff Bridges in it and Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall was like a regular. She was one of the creators. And I think Liza Minnelli was in like the Princess and the Pea with Arthur. Remember Arthur, the British guy, Arthur?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's the right cast. Anyway. So I can't get it. I can't really get into anything that's cartoonish, (laughs) which includes anime. But thank you for your recommendations, everyone. What was I watching? Didn't we talk about what I was watching? I feel like I told you what I was watching. There was some mystery I was watching. Obviously, we have to remind, it's our it's that time of the week where we have to remind Leslie to honor his word and watch, watch
1: The Killing. The killing. Okay. I'm sorry, I got caught up in Yellowstone, actually. I got called up in, right. I, called no, up in I would, I, I had full plans to continue The Killing, but
0: this Yellowstone thing just came out of nowhere. Well, we're gonna, he, don't worry, he's gonna do it. We're gonna make him do it. By the way, before we bring on our guests, just a reminder, please like this stream. Like right now, everyone, just stop what you're doing and just, do a thumbs up, literally just like the stream. It helps with the algorithm, helps bring people to the stream. Also make sure you have subscribed, hit subscribe and then press the bell so that uh, you get notified. There's something weird happening with the notifications though. I'm not sure what's happening, but definitely don't let the bad guys win. Keep subscribing, stay subscribed, share this on social media. And also of course you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And oh, and one more thing, join. Join, you can become Katie Halper Show members. Did you know this, Leslie? On YouTube. And if you do that, you get access to badges and emojis, special emojis, including including a Bodhi emoji. That's really cute. So we're going to bring on our guest. We're so excited to bring her on. She is a Beirut-based journalist. She is with Breakthrough News, and she's going to tell us about what she learned on the ground in Ethiopia. Put your hands together for Rania Kalik. Hi, Rania. Hi! I hope everybody's clapping right now. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. Like, Here, I yeah. can't hear the claps, but I'm assuming it's happening. <laughs> well, we can we can hear it. Yeah, and thank you, you know, Benjamin, for joining. We just got a new member. Awesome.
2: That's awesome. I, I just wanted to say before we get into it, I, that's the second time today I've heard somebody mention the show Yellowstone. So I guess I have to watch it now.
1: Oh yes, everybody has to see. If you want to understand America, you gotta watch Yellowstone. <laughs> All right. Then.
2: I'm gonna All right. I'm it. sold. I'm sold. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> sold. Yeah.
0: New member. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I am Benjamin. Awesome, thank you for becoming a member, Rania. Tell us about why you went to Ethiopia.
2: So I went to Ethiopia uh, last month, a few weeks ago, actually, uh, on a reporting trip in the Horn of Africa with the Breakthrough News team. It was me and Will Whiteman, our cameraman, and of course, everyone here will know who Eugene Perrier is. Yeah. But so, so we went to Ethiopia because there. I'm sure you know a lot of people. I think are maybe a little confused about what's happening in Ethiopia, but they have some sense that they're is a war going on there because that's been in the news a lot. And actually, like the mainstream media version and not, maybe the entire media spectrum version of what's happening in Ethiopia is really the State Department narrative, which is that the Ethiopian government, led by this Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, is committing atrocities and a genocide against the Tigrayan people that are, and then there's a, there's a group called the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front or TPLF that is like gloriously fighting and rebelling against the central government led by Abiy Ahmed to protect themselves from like a genocidal campaign. Uh, that's like the, 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 the really like dominant narrative about what's happening in Ethiopia. But actually there is a much more interesting nuance about what's happening in Ethiopia because you see the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front or the TPLF was actually in charge of Ethiopia for almost 30 years until recently. And they were very close allies with the United States. They ruled Ethiopia with like an iron fist. It was pretty much a dictatorship. They tortured people, they disappeared people. They stole, they like stole like $30 billion (laughs) that nobody knows what happened to $30 billion in aid that went to Ethiopia while they were in charge. But the reason they got away with behaving that way is because they were basically the police of American imperialism in the Horn of Africa. They went to war with the Eritreans. Eritrea is a very demonized country and I can explain why in a little bit, but they went to war with the Eritreans in the late 90s in collaboration with the United States. In 2006, they invaded Somalia and basically destroyed one of the first sort of grassroots governing structures that came to power that brought stability to the country, which hadn't been stable for a very long time. The Islamic Courts Union, they came in and invaded Somalia and very brutally destroyed that government and committed horrible atrocities. And they did that in cooperation with the Bush administration. Some might say at the behest of the Bush administration. So this group, the TPLF, has a nasty history of behaving like real bullies, not just in Ethiopia, but in the Horn of Africa. And uh, Rania,
1: I actually uh, I want to mention that the NSA built a surveillance network in Ethiopia to spy on the rest of Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, which was originally reported in Intercept.
2: Yeah. And that, of course, like who gives a green light to that is the TPLF. And so my point point is to say that this is not just some insurgent group that showed up because atrocities were being committed. This is a group that was in power for a very long time. And in 2016, there was an uprising in Ethiopia that sort of led to elections and ultimately by 2018 pushed the TPLF out of power with Abiy Ahmed becoming prime minister. Um, And People were really happy at Ethiopia that the TPLF was finally out of power. There was actually like a lot of democratic space. Uh, Abiy Ahmed, say what you want about him, but he did like open up political space, opened up the government, people who, when we were there, we actually spoke to people who work in the government now who had actually been living in exile. They're not a part of the, the Abiy Ahmed's party, but they had been living in exile because the TPLF had like imprisoned them and then they left the country. And they came back because they were like, "Oh, there's finally political space for us to be a part of this government." I mean, and just to give people an idea, Ethiopia isn't some tiny country. Ethiopia is the second largest country in Africa. It has like a population of 114 million people, I think, and it borders like a bunch of countries. So, which is one reason why it's so strategically located. It borders Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, Sudan, South Sudan, Kenya. It's also been one of the largest recipients of U.S. aid in sub-Saharan Africa, of course, until recently. And that was because the TPLF, again, was in power, was like sort of America's police. So after the TPLF is pushed out of power in 2018, they're pissed off. They're really angry. They're like, no, that's not okay. And so then comes like the, I mean, I'm going to skip a little bit because there's a lot that happened. There was like a ele- the T- the TPLF held their own elections in Tigray right. against the desires of the central government, which is kind of like, a way to give a middle finger to the central yeah, government. A dick, a dick
0: move, I believe, technically. Or a huge technical dick move. Yeah.
2: But basically, like last November, the TPLF launched a, what can only be considered a violent coup attempt where they attacked the Ethiopian Central, Com- or Northern Command Base, which basically meant attacking a bunch of bases. Nobody really knows how many people they killed in this attack, but you know it's estimated to be in the thousands. And they attacked several surrounding villages and like ethnically cleanse people from several surrounding villages as a part of this attack. And it was like a violent coup attempt. They failed, but it started a war. Like the government responded. January 6th. Yeah, but (laughs) we were way worse than January 6th. Way worse, right? The government responded by attacking them. And that is how the war started. The TPLF admits to starting the, the war. But if you read like media coverage about it, they just blame the government. And throughout this war, Um, You know, the U.S. has constantly blamed the government for everything, has completely ignored atrocities committed by the TPLF. Early on in the war, a lot of it was sort of like in Tigray, which is a a, a northern state in Ethiopia. A lot of it was in and around there uh, because that's where the TPLF is based. Uh, but in June of last year, the federal government declared a unilateral ceasefire because that's what the international community had been demanding. They were under a lot of pressure. They were like, you're blocking aid. They kept accusing them of blocking aid and of like causing the war to, like, to go on for longer and of committing atrocities. So they were like, fine. They declared a unilateral uh, ceasefire and they basically withdrew from Tigray, And that was an opportunity to de-escalate. And yeah. what did the TPLF do? They launched several violent offensives to neighbor, into neighboring states to try to get to both Sudan for strategic reasons and to the capital Addis Ababa to basically try to overthrow the government. And along the way to try to get to the capital, they took over like one village after another in the Amhara and Afar regions, which are other states in Ethiopia. And you know that's where we visited. We spent a lot of time in Amhara visiting uh, several different towns uh, like along the path of where the TPLF had recently been pushed out. They had occupied those towns in recent months in, as a part of those offensives. And I mean, the stories we heard, systematic atrocities like looting, gang rapes. Like, we, I mean, I I have a video coming up soon about, we, we've like been working on several videos, video packages on these issues. We spoke to victims. Those will be coming out in the coming days. But I mean, this was like, the level of atrocities were just mind-blowing. I mean, I, I've i been to Syria and Iraq. I've spoken to Yazidis. Uh, that actually, like, I did interview women who were gang raped by TPLF uh, fighters in their town. And the last time I did that was when I was talking to Yazidis who were, like, kidnapped and made into sex slaves by ISIS. I mean, just, like, gang raped in front of their children. Um, and this isn't to say that, like, one side is clean and the other side isn't. It's just to say that... This is the side that is being portrayed as sort of like glorious rebels by the international press, by the U.S. State Department, or at the very least, their their atrocities are being whitewashed to try to basically, you know, lay the groundwork for a regime change attempt in Ethiopia through proxy. Um, And it's really horrible because, you know, Ethiopia, like I mentioned, it's not okay to like regime change a tiny country, but regime change is very destabilizing. We've seen the consequences of this in libya which now has open air slave markets and like three rival governments and no stability and just a bunch of gangs and militias run everything we've seen the consequences of this in iraq which led to the rise of isis ultimately we've seen the consequences of this in syria which led to the rise of isis as well and a bunch of other salafi jihadist groups when you collapse a state when you weaken a state when you destabilize a country it destroys people's lives masses of people die people flee the country like in the millions and it actually ends up destabilizing the entire region. And in the case of places like Libya and Syria, I mean, it ended up destabilizing Europe because the influx of refugees made everybody so crazy and xenophobic. So just imagine for a moment if a country like Ethiopia collapsed, a country of 114 million people collapsed in the Horn of Africa, the consequences that would have on neighboring states, it already has had some consequences on neighboring states, this war alone, the consequences that would have on a refugee like outflow from Ethiopia and where would they go? It would like destabilize way more than just the Horn of Africa. It's just completely insane. And we know now, I mean, the U.S. has been saying, oh, we don't take sides, but it's obvious from their statements, they are taking a side. But then, you know, recently there was this leaked Zoom call between like top level, like senior U.S. analysts and former uh, American diplomats and other European diplomats who are basically meeting on Zoom with TPLF leaders talking about how they could take over the government. So it's like, this isn't just some theory people are saying, there's a lot of truth to what Ethiopians feel. And that's another thing. I mean, the US government through its actions uh, and statements about Ethiopia. One thing, by the way, that they've done as well is they've actually economically punished the Ethiopians by removing them from the uh, African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is basically like I don't understand economics that well. I just know that it makes it cheaper for the Ethiopia to be a base for like factories that can produce goods and then be exported from there. I don't know the economic words for it. In fact, Eugene just did a really good package on this on Breakthrough News, and you can go check that out on our on our YouTube channel. But they removed the you they're know being they removed, punished though Econom- they're, being they're being punished. punished because they fought back. Like, I don't understand. This is the other thing is the U.S. kept saying throughout all of this, as the TPLF is taking over one town, raping its way, raping its way through one town after another to try to get to the capital. And they're, they're saying, they're telling you their intention is to march to the capital and take over the capital. And you expect the government to do nothing? Because that's what the U.S. was saying. Put down your weapons and stop fighting, and then we won't punish you. And they're threatening Ethiopia with even more sanctions now. And it's just completely insane. And if you talk to any, I mean, this has been a really radicalizing moment for a lot of Ethiopians, both in Ethiopia and in the diaspora. There's a huge Ethiopian uh, diaspora in the United States and across Europe who've been very active on this issue. People have probably seen the hashtag no more campaign at some point, even if they didn't really know what it meant in their Twitter feeds. That's been about, you know, no more regime change attempts, no more intervention, largely from like the Air train and Ethiopian diaspora community. And in Ethiopia, I mean, it was amazing when we were there, like we would, me and Eugene would just be walking on the street. And, you know, Breakthrough News has been covering this issue for the last year quite a bit, like on my show, on Eugene's show, on our live streams. Uh, and we would just be walking the street and people would be like, oh my God, it's Eugene and Rania. You guys are rock stars. And the only reason that they even knew that is because they're, a lot of Ethiopians speak English. They consume English speaking media And they're pissed off because the English speaking media, even on Democracy Now!, has been just horrible, horrible and like promoting lies. And they're just like thankful for any outlet that is willing to like give them a voice, the majority of the population, a voice on this issue. And it's not that their side is perfect. It's that they hate the TPLF. And they don't want them in power anymore. And they see them as like a terrorist organization that tr- that basically tortured everybody for 30 years. And why should they get to stay in power? This is a regime change attempt. And the U.S. is backing it. So they also have just become super radicalized against U.S. imperialism. Um, which is kind of interesting (laughs) because, you know, Ethiopia has been a longtime ally of the U S so Ethiopians never really thought in a negative way about America, but now, you know, there's been a lot of Ethiopians, like now they're learning about Syria and they're learning about Cuba and they're learning about what America does to Venezuela. And they're like, Oh, okay, this isn't like new. We're just being punished because we're not doing exactly what the U S wants. And what is the ideology of the TPLF? So the TPLF, like if you read uh, articles about it, will be described as being like a Marxist organization. And it seems to have maybe started out at, at that way as some sort of like leftist, I, I, I'm not quite sure. Like, I don't know if they were Marxist-Leninist or some people have said they were Maoist. I'm not quite sure exactly what they were. They may have started out with some leftism in them, but that was quickly abandoned uh, is when they took over, maybe even before they took over, but definitely when they took over in the 90s. That was very quickly abandoned, uh, and you know I don't think there's anything that considered can be considered leftist about them. I mean, if, even if you look at the area where they're based now, which is in Tigray, it's a very poor state where it's there's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of inequality in Ethiopia in general. Uh, it's not like they, de- they you know they're always praised for oh look how they developed the country. But when I went there, there wasn't development. There was a lot of poverty. There was a, there was a lot of development that I saw was actually recent. It was in the last two years. Two, three years since Abiy Ahmed took over. A lot of development projects actually funded by China, uh, which is another aspect of this, by the way, is Ethiopia has closer relations with China. When we were in the capital, we saw a lot of like China had built a brand new, really beautiful, like public library, just gorgeous, huge building, a lot of huge, gorgeous parks, like as nice as parts of Central Park with like, you know, fountains of water for children to play in and just spaces for people to have wedding, you know, come take their wedding photos or have their graduation photos, just hang out on a Saturday, like really, really nice park areas that I wasn't expecting to see, but they were all brand new. They were all like in the last two to three years. So you can imagine a country like Ethiopia and what people there are seeing, they're seeing, and I think this is maybe common across a lot of countries in the global South these days, is you see what the U.S. does, which is bully you, punish you, demand you do things that you don't want to do. And then if you don't do them, like, you know, iron fist, crush, like, and then you see what China's doing. Right. And then if you, and then you see like what China's doing, and I'm not trying to like glorify everything China does, but they're building things that are actually useful to people. They're building roads and bridges and libraries and parks and it's just like such a stark contrast um that you can understand why people in the global south often don't have the same like crazy view about china that americans do uh because they're not being bombarded with anti-china propaganda all the time but also the reality on the ground is like too hard to challenge and they're not being literally bombarded yeah literally literally bombarded um, but yeah, back to the TPLF, the other thing that was interesting is, you know, the we also went to Eritrea and the Eritrean, um, the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front actually worked with the TPLF in the 80s uh, to fight the basically the communist government of Ethiopia. And they both call themselves leftist organizations, but they split in the 90s because of the way the TPLF went about governing Ethiopia. The constitution they created actually is, responsible for much of the ethnic divisions that exist in Ethiopia right now. They're the ones who split Ethiopia into ethnic states based basically on language, like the ethnic states are split on language. So you're, you know, if you speak this language, you're this ethnicity that's attached to this language, which is a bit odd. But anyways, Ethiopia is split along these ethnic lines because of the constitution put in place uh, by the TPLF and the EPLF did not agree with that at all, didn't agree with their governing structure. And then they ended up going to war with each other. Uh, where it it was over land that the TPLF had stolen basically from Eritrea. Um, And so the Eritreans have a very negative view of the TPLF. And moreover, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia under Abiy Ahmed in 2018, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for making peace with Eritrea, this peace deal. And now they're very, very close allies. And a lot of the development practices in Eritrea, which are like all about Sustain all about like like sovereignty and being able to do everything self in a self sufficient style where you don't have to depend on outside aid. Some of these practices are now being adopted in some capacity, not like a huge amount, but in some capacity by the Ethiopians, particularly when it comes to like farming and growing food and how to do that. Like when you have all this fertile land without having to depend on outside aid, which is how the most like most of like capitalist African countries function where like the US gets to call the shots on how you know the US and the UN and the World Bank and the IMF get to call the shots on how you develop. And, you know, like it's never in a way that's self-sufficient. It's always quite the opposite, which I think is one of the reasons Eritrea is so demonized. But that being said, the TPLF, like you'll see some scholars in the US talk about them like they're leftists, but based on their history, especially their recent history, and their, I just can't see like, you know, other than just maybe labeling themselves that way, like what their action, how their actions actually match up to that.
1: Well, even before that, they came to power because the explicitly, you know, Russia-aligned uh, government, the dirge, uh, failed after, you know, the Eastern Bloc failed, uh, right. fall of communism in general. And the United States was funding, of course, this whole time, right. rebel groups against mm-hmm. them. So, of course, and we're supporting these groups. So, of course, uh, the government that took over after communism fell and was funded by the United States was is probably not actually a Marxist.
2: Okay? Right. I would and imagine. Actually, you know, since you're, you mentioned the past in the 80s, um, I'm not saying this. The BBC and the CIA are saying this. Um, the TPLF actually like took uh, used. You know how the Ethiopia had like the whole famine in Ethiopia yeah, in the eighties. We are the world we are the children. Yeah, they like stole millions of dollars <laughs> uh, to fund their insurgency during the eighties, which is one of the reasons that the Ethiopian government today was demanding that, that they get to inspect all the aid going into Degry uh, because of the TPLF's past like that the CIA even admits to of um, siphoning aid money and aid away for the purposes of funding and feeding your insurgency. And what else did
0: people tell you? What were the, some of the most shocking things that, that people told you? Not, even, not just about this conflict, but I guess just about life in Ethiopia in general.
2: I mean, well, so one of the most interesting things about being in the capital especially is I don't know if you guys were following the coverage that closely, but in, I would say maybe like September, October, definitely November, October, November, mostly the TPLF had taken, had really like taken over a lot of towns in Amhara and they were like 300 kilometers or 350 kilometers, which I don't know, what is that miles, like 200 miles or something away from Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And they were like, we're coming to the Capitol. And the entire international, I mean, 200 miles is really far. Like, it's actually, it's not close. It takes a while. And like, it's not like they're just driving there with no traffic. Right. Like, It's like, you know, they're making, they, they made their way to where they did quite slowly as it was. But anyways, they they were saying, we're going to come to the Capitol. And then the entire international press, like from the New York Times, to the Washington Post, the BBC, Al Jazeera to the State Department was like, Ethiopia, like it's the, the TPLF is just outside of the capital. Like they're just outside, the Capitol's about to fall. And every single day, I think maybe even until now, I'm not sure if it's stopped. The State Department issued warnings on a daily basis for Americans in Ethiopia. There's a lot of people who are dual citizens in Ethiopia. For Americans in Ethiopia to leave immediately because of the danger um, of the conflict coming to the capital. Like every single day, at one point, they were like sending out emails that you like you should write your will and make sure you have your affairs in order if you're going to stay. Like there was a huge propaganda effort to to, to paint this 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 image of the capital being about to fall, and it's like psychological warfare because people who were there were like, it looks fine, but maybe it's not. And I remember watching videos of like at one point France joined in and was like telling their citizens to leave. I remember watching this like France 24 video where there's like all these people arriving at the airport in Paris from Ethiopia. And they're like, yeah, like I have a house there and a job there, but you know, the government told me to leave because like of impending doom. And now I'm here and I don't know where my family's gonna live. And I don't really know what I'm gonna do for money. And it was just like, one other guy was like, yeah, everything was fine there, but they told us to come back. So I did. And so we went there and I'm not gonna lie. Like, you know, I was hearing conflicting reports. You know, you see the international media, then some people there are like, it's fine. And when we got there, like to the capital, that is, it was totally normal. There was nothing off or violent about it. Like totally normal. People were just enjoying their weekend. That was kind of the most surprising thing to me. I was like, I could be like in an American city right now, but actually there's like fewer homeless people. Yeah. But, um, so that was kind of like a shocking thing for me. And of course the other, the, I mean, you know, that was less shocking than going into towns that had been recently taken back from like the from the TPLF by the government and and local special forces. And I mean, just like they destroyed everything. Every town they went into, they, I mean, they were their whole, like even even ISIS and Al-Qaeda, when they took over towns in like Syria or Iraq, they might destroy them in the fighting. But afterwards they were like trying to govern. Like they wanted to take over so they could govern. So they would institute some sort of like policies. They would govern things would kind of go on functioning to some degree. That's not what the TPLF did. They weren't interested in governing anything. They just wanted to destroy. Like that was like, all we saw was one medical clinic after another one, you know, in this place called Lalibela, which is like a UNESCO World Heritage site because it has these like, eight, these really old, beautiful churches that are like built into the mountains. Um, it's like a huge kind of pilgrimage site, site. It's a huge tourist site. They have an airport. It's like this small town in the mountains of the amhara state but they have an airport so because like people come from the entire world to come visit the these these amazing structures these amazing churches and so the tplf took over Lalibela uh months ago and they were they i think they were in charge they, they had taken over for like four or five months and when we went there it had just been taken back like within two days um they had cut the electricity. That's one thing that TPLF did. They cut the electricity. So nobody had electricity. They cut communications so you couldn't make phone calls. And they had destroyed the airport. Like, I mean, just completely trashed it, ripped everything out of the walls, like broke every window, every piece of glass in there was broken. Every ATM. I mean, the only thing that made sense was the ATMs were broken and the money taken out. Like that to me made sense. Right. But the level of destruction was just to destroy the local economy. Because you don't want this town to be able to function. This is like a source of income for everybody who lives here because they all depend on tourism. And now you've made that next to impossible for for the near future, at least, until it's rebuilt. So they destroyed that. Like we went to, we also saw like a medical, uh, a medical clinic there where they had destroyed it. Like they had destroyed a maternity ward, like a delivery, a delivery room area. So I don't know where women are going to have babies there anymore. They destroyed pharmacies. Like they destroyed any symbol of the government. So like what, what could be, like equated with a DMV here, a place where you go and get your license or various licenses or to get, you know, your records. Like those kinds of places, totally destroyed. Hotels, totally destroyed. And while they were, you know, people had stories. Everybody had a story. They came and looted my house. They took everything I had. They, and these are already really poor people, by the way. Like Amhara was, a lot of the towns we went to were quite poor towns um, that already have very little. Um, they're very the small towns. And whatever little people had has just been destroyed. They destroyed churches. They destroyed, I mean, it's just, it was like the level of destruction was, uh, I mean, it's like, I can't even really describe it in words because of how awful it was. And this is what the US was encouraging. And this is what the international media, particularly the New York Times was defending. Like until now, I've only seen one report on, like we went and spoke to women who were gang raped and they're not shy about talking about it. Like they're pissed. They're pissed, and they want the international community to do something about it. And they want like their perpetrators brought to justice, right? And you know, everybody else has access to these places. We even saw other reporters in these areas. And I've only seen one report about gang rapes by the mainstream press and by any press. Well, Maine's, thats not true. I've seen one by like an in, by by one photographer. We know who's really good, but. I've only seen one like lengthy report and that's from Reuters. And it came like a month and a half after the fact, I think, but either way, like what, I mean, all of the attention has been on Tigray. There hasn't been a war in Tigray in months because the government withdrew. There has been a war in these other places. And the other thing people told us is that while they were being gang raped, while their houses were being looted, while they were being attacked or their fathers or brothers or whatever were being executed, They were being told by the TPLF that like, like you're basically not human because you're Amhara. So all this time we're hearing, okay, like these people are committing genocide against Tigrayans, but the rhetoric that I'm hearing from people who were attacked by the TPLF is actually really bigoted, horrible, like genocidal language. One woman who was pregnant uh, at the time that she was gang raped, she was very obviously pregnant because she was showing and she was telling them I'm pregnant. Please don't do this to me. They were like, we don't want you to have children because you're Amhara. Like, so th- these kinds of things were really shocking to me because it's like, you have an international press corps that's like pretending like they care so much about human rights and, you know, atrocities in Ethiopia, but they're not covering this. And I don't understand why, unless they have an agenda. And so what is the agenda? Why are they siding with the TPLF? You know, I think there's a couple things happening here. Um... And I, you know, this is also, I think, a parallel to like reporting from the Middle East is one, first and foremost, a lot of these reporters who go to these places are white, American or British. That doesn't make you automatically bad, but it's like not even just white, whatever, even if they're not white, they don't speak the language is my point. Like they don't speak the language. They don't know the culture. They're just parachuting in very briefly and. Um, And they're relying on local fixers. And in many cases, they're relying on their pro-TPLF fixers. Because the the TPLF, listen, they were in power for 30 years. And they were very strategic and smart about how they maintained power. And one way they did that is by having a network of people internationally who can do good PR for them. And that's why they were able to even push their narrative into the mainstream in the first place. That's why they have a network of fixers who can push their line on this issue. Um, and that's also why they also have people like they strategically place people at the u n. Like there's a lot there's a lot of pro TPL people at the u n, which has been one of the Ethiopian governments. Ongoing problems with the UN, because I don't know if you guys have been following that, but the they actually even expelled a few of the UN staff in Ethiopia because of how biased they felt they were being. Um, I'm not saying that they're absolutely right. I'm just saying that the TPLF did a really, really good job. I mean, you don't stay in power for 30 years and steal $30 billion and not like create a system that, if you're ever pushed out of power, will help you regain it, or at least like burn down who you know, whatever anybody else who takes over after you is in charge of. And I think that's what Happen there, so the other issue with reporting is, of course, like when it comes to mainstream media outlets, there's always a bias in favor of whatever the State Department says. Like it's just that's like when it comes to CNN, when it comes to the New York Times, when it comes to the Washington Post, in almost every issue in every country, it's like aligned with whatever the U.S. imperialist line is because a lot of those people are just straight up imperialists, <laughs> and that's you know, and that's how they think too. Uh, they think whatever's good for America is good for the world. And that ends up being reflected in the line they take on what they cover. Um, so I think that those are like two really big reasons why uh, the reporting has been so terrible. And then one last thing actually I'll mention is I think this is a lot of... Um, a lot. This happens to a lot of reporters who go into conflict zones. Is whoever they're embedded with, they end up sympathizing with. So if you go... To cover the war in Ethiopia, and your fixer is someone who's pro TPLF, and you're surrounded by them and all their friends and the people they know. You even maybe embed with TPLF fighters. You start to like absorb their views. I saw it. I mean, this happened with a lot of reporters who went to Syria in the beginning before the FSA started kidnapping people. They would like embed with the Free Syrian Army, and they'd be like, those. You know, they wouldn't really understand what anybody was saying, so they wouldn't understand like, oh, they're like calling for genocide and stuff they would just be like, oh, these people are so nice and cool and they're feeding me. And like, it's really cool. They're all holding guns and like the US supports them. So it's like, okay to support these people with guns and they adopt their line and their mentality and they take that with them when they leave. And I think that that's also what happened is that there's like this like, kind, of, kind of emotional investment in the people that you get to know to the point where like, whatever they think, you think. And then after you leave, you stay in touch with them. They message you. And, you know, you see them as a source and you've already adopted their sort of like opinions and, you know, and and you're sort of like emotionally invested. And so now you're just kind of becoming like a mouthpiece for these people. And so I think that that's, that's definitely an aspect of this, especially with like the New York times guy, the embedding (laughs) culture. Yeah. The embedding. Yeah. I think that really impacts, I'm not saying everyone, but I think that can have a huge impact on your attitude. I mean, I'll even admit to it, like. I already have an opinion about things and I know I do. And I know I have biases. Um, But if you spend time only on one side of of a conflict and you get to know people, you do become emotionally invested and like you care about them and you care about what happens to them and you hope they don't die and you hope like they do well in life. And, you know, if you, and like that happens, even I think if you embed with the FSA and there's also like something about boys who embed like, I think there's, I think that like, I'm not joking. Like, this is just a theory of mine. I have no proof for this. Now I'm just purely speculating and like saying things out of my ass, but I think there's some truth to it. It is, I think like, I think men really like the idea. Like there's some men who really like the idea of like, you know, guys like to watch dude movies where like there's like a hero man with a gun and like, you know, he's going to save people. And if you embed with a group of people, whether it's like the US military in Iraq or the FSA in Syria, you kind of get to live that out, that fantasy out as a dude, like through other people. And then you kind of glorify those people that you were like sitting around drinking coffee with and like smoking cigarettes with and, you know, like watching them have their guns and, you know, at least in their minds, like save something. So, I don't know, Leslie's like nodding along like, yeah, that's totally a thing. Yeah, I,
1: we were just talking about that's what Yellowstone is. Right. Like that Yellowstone, is exactly what I'm <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, but, and
2: How much of
0: this also, though, is the United States wanting to destabilize the Horn of Africa because that will then allow them to exert more control over that region?
2: So I actually don't think the U.S. has like much of a um, thought out policy on this. You know, I'm not there inside like meetings at the State Department, so I don't really know. But if you look at like who the U.S. is putting in charge of things, they don't really have knowledgeable people. Like they, they appointed Jeffrey Feltman uh, to, which is both like, sounds both silly because he has no, he's the special envoy, sorry, to the Horn of Africa. This guy has no experience in Africa. Uh, so it's just an odd choice. But then he's also a shady character because he's played a really shady role in places like Haiti In the past. He's also played a really shady role in Syria and Lebanon in the past, uh, and sort of like encouraging destabilization campaigns behind closed doors. So there's that, but also he has no experience in the Horn of Africa. And then they don't even have like, they haven't really like the Biden administration doesn't have people. I even looked into it one time. I don't know the names off the top of my head, but the people that they have in certain positions across the horn, aren't people who like are experienced or know, or would like know what they're doing or even speak the languages. It's just like kind of people that seem to have been appointed to be appointed. So it kind of seems like they are flailing. Um, they don't know what to do because they've lost control. Uh, and they didn't even really lose control. They I think they just thought because the TPLF was out of power and then, and then the Ethiopia made peace with Eritrea, like, like outside of the realm of US anything, um, they felt like, oh shit, like we don't have control anymore. Um, and they didn't really think through their policy. And it kind of seems like it's all over the place. I don't think they really know what they're doing other than they're just against things changing um, in, in ways that would create space for like more independent actors in the region. Because these aren't anti-American actors. Like Abi Ahmed wasn't some, you know, he wasn't ranting like Yankee go home, you know? He was just like making some deals with China, making this peace deal with Eritrea, He was forging a path somewhat independent from U.S. interests. That's all, like slightly independent from U.S. interests. And there's something similar happening in Somalia right now. The U.S. isn't happy with the person who's in charge. And they're trying to use their guy in the government to like undermine him. And so people are angry about Somalia right now. Um, The U.S. has really done a huge disservice to itself in the Horn of Africa because other African countries have not gotten on board with what the U.S. is doing in Ethiopia. And in fact, I think something that was really inspiring when we were both in Ethiopia and Eritrea is, and I don't mean to like overemphasize this because maybe I'm being a little too optimistic, but it does seem like there's more, there's a growing kind of sense of we need a united horn of Africa sentiment. A united horn of Africa that isn't fighting each other, that isn't split, that isn't going to war with each other, that can economically cooperate and be like a powerful region that can control everything for its own interests. And that I think is what the biggest threat to the U.S. is. The U.S. does not, just like it does not want a united Middle East that can be like an economic powerhouse, doesn't want a united Latin America that can be like economically cooperating with one another and be like a region that you have to treat with respect. The same goes for the Horn of Africa. And so I think that's what the bigger problem is, but I don't think the U.S. like really knows long-term what its policy is. Other than we want to control everything And we don't want China there It's right. kind of like Yeah
1: but the, the fact that they're playing Like playing with this What could be a massive fire Because like you said There are 114 million people In Ethiopia If the government collapses Like Like what you can't even imagine what could happen just to an entire region uh, if something like that happened and in the U.S. just because Ahmed, he wasn't he's not like a radical or anything. Like He was part of the coalition <laughs> that the TPLF right. uh, governed from. Like he's not like some, you know, radical outsider and just him cutting one or two deals they're willing to, you know, throw, uh, pour gasoline on what could be this huge, uh, f- fire for the TPLF, which d- doesn't have any credibility here because this was your boy, like, yeah. like, you don't, you know, I, I, it's just <laughs> absolutely amazing that like the irresponsibility, like, and we just don't care w- about what the consequences are.
2: I mean, think about it. Like they never care. Like look at the messes they create. I'm. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that. I think sometimes chaos is the goal, like Michael Parenti might say, right? But I don't think it's always necessarily like some, you know, like they've outlined some like really strategic way of like destabilizing the horn or of the like. Sometimes it's just sheer stupidity and ignorance to the point of like that nobody even knows why you're doing what you're doing anymore, other than like you're behaving like a child who just wants to get your way. Um, And yeah, it's, you don't know what the consequences of this are going to be. It's already had really horrible consequences on Ethiopia. I mean, it's like the country has been at war for over a year um, and people's lives have been completely shattered. Uh, And now the U.S. is like trying to punish them economically. I mean, that's the other thing too, is it isn't over just because Like right now, the TPLF has had to retreat because they were losing, because the central government was like, absolutely not. And they fought them and pushed them out of the areas they took over. And now they're back in Tigray. But it's just the economic war is just getting started. Like removing Ethiopia from Agoa is just the beginning. The U.S. has been threatening sanctions for months, months, and at some point probably will... Carry through with those sanctions and just thinking about syria, you know, like syria was at war for a number of years and it devastated the country It devastated the people's lives the country's infrastructure was destroyed But one of the biggest obstacles for syrians now is sanctions more than any war because they can't rebuild anything They can't rebuild hospitals that they were destroyed. They can't rebuild factories that were destroyed, they have no source of revenue anymore. So the, so, and nobody has like, there's the currency has no value. People can't afford basic things. There's food shortages and fuel shortages and the electricity sector is collapsing because they can't replace parts and they don't have access to oil and on and on and on and on and on. And And that, I mean, like, I hope that's not Ethiopia's future, but the U S could do that to Ethiopia and there's a chance they might there's obviously, there's the Suez Canal
0: and there's shipping lanes. So there is things of importance in that area that I'm sure the United States would like to have as much control over, either directly or through docile governments that are acting at its behest. Let's see. Abs Am writes, Abis in bed with the despotic Eritrean regime to isolate Tigray. Abis uh, also complicit in Amra's illegal annexation of Western Tigray.
2: Huh. Well, okay. Like, I think there's people who would see it quite differently. Um, You know, I, with the annexation, I mean, when the TPLF took over, they took other people's land. They took Eritrean land and they also took land from Amhara. Uh, And so they call it Western Tigray, but that's not what other people who feel it's their land call it. So, I mean, there's different ways to look at that. I don't think it's as clear as this person's making it out to be. And I also don't think it's fair to like demonize the Eritreans like that because, You know, everybody always wants to, this is is a point that I think Eugene makes really well. When we talk about certain countries, especially ones that America demonizes, we always talk about them in comparison to us, how we function, how we govern, or to like Europe. But we never compare them to their peers. So if you want to talk about, oh, the Eritreans are just a despotic regime. I mean, do you talk about other African countries that way? Because there's a lot of African countries that aren't what you would call democratic. Um, could be considered despotic regimes. Um, That doesn't stop America from being allied with them. Um, In fact, Eritrea has many better social indicators than most African countries, despite being totally isolated from the rest of the world because of the United States. Uh, You know, in the United States, some of the U.S.'s biggest allies in Africa are not only some of the most despotic regimes, they're some of the most unequal places full of violence and poverty, because of how unequal they are. So I think that it's like, kind of like when we talk about places also, like in um, the Middle East, people are like, oh, this despotic regime, okay, but like we're friends with Saudi Arabia. Like, is that really your number one concern all of a sudden about a country in this region? Is that like they're not democratic enough for you? Like, why don't you go shout about this other country? I'm not saying you can't criticize Eritrea, but like when I see it framed like that, like, are you as upset with Ethiopia's relationship? with nearby countries that are also despotic that happen to not be Eritrea because they have those relationships too. So it's just interesting that he highlighted, this person highlighted Eritrea as the problem. Like and not Djibouti, for example. Like I have a friend that's literally Djiboutian who's like in Somalia and hiding from the government in Djibouti because it's not a democracy, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, by the way, can I say what state
0: you're both in? Well, Leslie, you're already open. In what state you're in? We're in
2: in Virginia. Yeah. So, what
0: what is going on? Are there people outside trying to drive in that stuck in that traffic jam? No,
1: it's nowhere. I don't think it's anywhere near us. It's just like, uh, but there. uh, But this is a big like national news uh, story. Like all these people stuck on what I think is I, ninety five I ninety five, and it's just uh, amazing. Tim Kane apparently. Tim Kane, yes, the former, the guy who was supposed to be our vice president, if it wasn't for that dang Bernie Sanders,
0: obviously. Yeah, was right. Bernie Sanders
2: is probably responsible for the reason Tim Kane spent like an, a day stuck on 95. I mean, if we're being honest.
0: If we're being honest. I actually,
2: you wanna hear something sad? I have been so busy with work and uh, like, also like we've been rushing to try and get like all our post-production stuff done so people can see like uh, the stuff we do from Ethiopia. Um, I've been so intensely focused on that. I had no idea this happened until my sister came home today and told me she was like, cause I'm staying at my sister's house. She was like, you didn't hear about 95. Apparently it's like all over the news. You, you know, Katie, I didn't even know it's like down the street from me right. or something. And I had no idea people were stuck outside for like 24 hours
1: yeah, it is worth mentioning though. Does this, this this did start to happen at noon on the day where it, what did snow that morning? Yeah. So why did you get in,
2: why did you get in your car on the highway?
1: Yeah, it was like a question of like why were oh, you you're on there? Blaming. Like, you're like so I understand so, well, there were a lot there are a lot of commercial vehicles out there, obviously because they're you know they're working. And that, that's what started the big pileup Because I think there was a the four-truck crash or something, something And yeah. it's just like miles and miles of people just stuck uh, on this road is which is just something that you wouldn't even imagine should be possible like there, sh- like there should be like off ramps and like places right. alternate routes and driving to the other side but people were just stuck there for over 24 hours in their cars like people were leaving their car running because they figured yep. oh it's going to be a few hours but then you know they really run out of cool. gas yeah it's really, really cool cold too was, right
2: and also, you know, uh, this area in general, like the Northern Virginia area is terrible at cleaning up snow. It's cause it, we don't get snow here that often. I think it happens like right. two or three times a year and it's never really every once in a while, it'll be like a foot of snow, but it's not common. So whenever it snows, everything shuts down and it's, it, it takes a while to get everything like plowed. Uh, so yeah, that was, I mean, it's like, in this area, that's even worse. I mean, if it happened like in Moscow or something, I'm sure you wouldn't have a problem yeah, cleaning up the snow yeah. or in New York, even. I think you guys are pretty used to snow in New York. I don't know. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. They've been trending for 15 plus hours. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. my God. That's a ho- that's actually really horrible. I would be like, I would be the worst. I would oh just be the worst. Wait, hold on. I would on. be all kinds. I'd be hungry. I'd have to pee. Like, let me show you this for them. Yeah, you have nowhere to pee. Like, where are you gonna go to the bathroom?
1: Yeah, some people have their kids, their dogs.
2: So you don't have any water or food and like yeah. no one can get to you. That's awful.
1: Which just seems Christ. like something I mean, I don't even imagine like how it could happen. because I mean, they're constantly building stuff here. They're constantly like there's supposed to be millions more people in this area because of all the all the development. <laughs> the the yeah, Amazon but you know, they, warehouses they and all the they're supposed to be more people coming in, and we can't even handle the people we got.
2: Well, Leslie, you'll know this, like what I'm talking about here, like the roads are always under construction because they're always adding more lanes. Like yes. instead of investing in public transportation, they just put a new lane in. So there's actually like highways that will have like 10 lanes. It's insane. It's actually like insane. I actually hate driving in this area on the highway. Like 495 frightens me because yeah. there's too many freaking lanes. Yeah. Like. The- well, They're supposed
1: he, to have extending the DC Metro um, out in this area, but it's just been very, very uh, slow process. But but there's so many, but they never stop building these luxury condos and these big highways. And toll roads I don't know how too, to like you paying out out the ass for toll roads. Imagine paying out the ass for toll roads all these years, and then you get trapped on the road because there's just no way for people. It's actually mind blowing. Like, it, I didn't think something like this could even happen, yeah. and I just. Only imagine like what do people in other countries who know how rich and wealthy we are I think know, when they, they see like, so hard. our major politicians
2: not just people companies. in other countries people in like third world countries are like what is wrong with this place like they're just like what like what Yeah,
1: yes, it, it's Here's it's amazing
0: me, update I've been on the road for 27 hours this <gasps> is oh Tim my Kane. god I and started he's like, my he- normal two hour drive to DC at 1pm yesterday 19 hours later I'm still not Near the capital. My office is in touch with VA dot to see how we can help other Virginians
2: in this situation. Please stay safe, everyone. He's like a VIP. Yeah. Like how is he st- how is he not freezing to death? Like your car can't stay on. Can your car yeah. just stay on for that long? I have without, no idea. Like, losing gas or the battery
1: no know. like people were just walking around and stuff like and pe- people are asking like couldn't you just pull off apparently not uh folks like there was it it because it, it just went on like for a very long length now obviously maybe the trucks don't might not want to pull off couldn't pull off but you just imagine that a lot of the cars could have gotten out some sort of way Jeez. but it just like was tw- 27 hours well,
0: that Tim Kaine, after 27 plus hours on the road from Richmond to D.C., Tim Kaine is safely back in the Capitol, still in good spirits. Well, I was about to start a hashtag, like, save Tim
2: Kaine. Yeah. You guys, I actually, I, to I, I, yeah. I, have to, I have to run. To run yeah. I, I, thank you so much for yeah, having me for on. Coming on. Yeah, Leslie, it was so good to see you too. So good to see you too. So good to see, to see you. you. I hope to see you guys again soon. I'll be in your time zone for a couple weeks at least. So great. More Let's great. do this again soon. All right, great. Bye guys. Bye, Bye.
0: All right, this is great. Great yeah, show. Great, great, great show. So much information, yeah. Glad we found out about Tim Kane. I was worried about Tim. I'm glad he's <laughs> safe. And this is a great show. And I'm looking forward to uh, next week. We're going to have, next Tuesday, we're going to have Richard Wolf on.
1: Oh, wonderful.
0: Yeah. And make sure you guys subscribe to this. Subscribe to The Katie Halper Show. Rate and review the podcast. Like. And if you want bonus content, like if you want to see the full episode of this show that you're watching right now, if you watch live, you're in luck. But if you watch this later, there'll be some clips that may be Patreon only. And so to access them, you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You definitely should join because we also have a great video that we did on Sunday. I had on Jamie Peck and we talked about a lot of fun stuff, including how terrible the BBC is. So that's worth the Patreon membership for. Got a great interview with Nils Melzer about Assange, great interview about Chile, great Patreon-only interviews. So really encourage you guys to become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And with that, I think we can just say our goodbyes to everyone, yeah. right?
1: Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Katie, course. everyone. Thank Please uh, check out Struggle Session at slash struggle session and my new show, Culture, at 1900culture.com. 1900. 1900culture.com. It's a call in show. So we got
0: When are you going to have me on?
1: Oh, whenever you want to come on. Absolutely. Right. Uh, uh, whenever. We, we're doing it twice a week. I think Mondays and Wednesdays and some bonus stuff. We are talking pro wrestling tomorrow. So any pro wrestling fans, please uh, check me out. Uh, 1900culture.com. But we talk TVs. We can talk The Killing. We can talk, uh, you know, whatever you've been watching uh, as well. And if you get caught up in Yellowstone, we we'll definitely can talk about that. Oh,
0: so. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Ryan Jekalek. And check out Breakthrough News. All right. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.